The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. You'll have to give me a minute. My ears are still ringing. I'm an old man. It takes time for these things to come back to normal. But I want to take this time and... Uh, talk to you about a few things related to our theme of right here, right now. So those of you who follow me on my Instagram page uh, will know that one of my hobbies is cooking outside of the university. And part of cooking is baking. And one of the things that I enjoy doing is making sourdough bread. And in thinking about um, today, I was reflecting on sourdough starter. This is the yeast culture that's used uh, to start to make bread rise, uh, that makes it nice and tasty. Um, and um, uh, it takes a lot of time for it to grow and for it to uh, mature. And I was um, first turned on to this by uh, talking to uh, a friend of mine that I met uh, at a, uh, a church leaders conference in Seattle named Larry. And uh, Larry said to me one day, would you like to see my starter? And I said, sure. So I'm a big bread eater, and, you know, but he's from Wisconsin, and he's in Washington State, and I'm not sure what he's, how he brought it here, but I went up to his room, and he had this suitcase which had three custom-built sections in it. One had spring water, one had flour, and one had this bubbling, gurgling, white, gooey mass, which was a sourdough starter. And I said to him, so you brought this with you from Wisconsin? And he said, yeah, whenever I travel, I take it with me. Um, and I have to continually feed it and water it and make sure that it, it survives. It's actually, in the world of science, as I teach my students, it's actually a living, breathing organism that's growing in there. Uh, and you have to uh, be good to it and continue to nurture it. So if I leave it alone at home, it will die. And, the, and so I asked him, well, do you mind if I take some of your sourdough starter home with me? And he said, sure. It's meant to be given away. And that reminded me of a particular verse in Scripture. Lamentations 4, 4. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. So I brought the sourdough starter home, and this is about 10 years now, and I brought the sourdough starter home, and I was very loving and caring of it. It stayed on my kitchen uh, counter, and every day I'd put half a cup of flour and half a cup of water, spring water, not Philly tap water, because that'll kill it. And it continued to grow, and when it got to a particular size, you take about half of it out, and you have two options. You either throw it away, or you pass it on to somebody. And so I often give it to people. I have members of my own faculty that I have given that uh, sourdough starter to. It became such an important part of my life that I gave it a name. It was named Rupert. <laughs> and 
and Rupert would live on my kitchen counter, and I would talk to him every day as my coffee was being made, and uh, it was part of my everyday life. And then last year, through a series of unavoidable events, I got sick, and I was in the hospital, and I was unable to take care of Rupert. And Rupert died. So then I wrote back to my friend, I emailed Larry in Wisconsin, hey, do you have that sourdough starter set? He said, sure. You know, my sourdough starter is 3,000 years old. It goes back to ancient Egypt, blah, blah, blah. I said, I love the story, but can I please just get some more starter to start with? And he said, sure. And so he overnighted me, because you have to overnight it, otherwise it'll die, um, this sourdough starter, and I started a new sourdough culture. And this time, uh, hoping that it would stay alive, I renamed it. Um, it's now named Sofia Vergara, <laughs> and she lives on my counter. Uh, my wife is okay with this. <laughs> and so every now and then, you know, when Sofia gets too big, I cut half of her off and I give it to somebody. And so even today, um, I took her, I brought her to Karen actually for show and tell. So this is Sofia Vergara. <laughs> Those of you close up front can see she's getting close to the top of this mason jar. So it's coming time to give some of this away. If any of you are bakers, I'll be happy to hook you up. But as you can see with sourdough starter, you can see it's a metaphor for the gospel. It needs to be nourished over time. It needs to be fed. It needs to be watered. It needs to be taken care of. We get the gospel, we are given the gospel from the generations that come before us, and it is our duty, our sacred duty, to pass that on to the next generation. We have to make sacrifices for it. Sometimes we have to uh, buy things, we have to uh, take it with us on trips, we have to buy padded suitcases, we have to take all kinds of measures to ensure that the gospel is passed on to the next generation. And furthermore, just as sourdough starter grows, you have two options with it. Just as with the gospel, you have two options. You can either throw it away, or you can pass it on to someone else. And so, a lot of people think at your age, you know, that missions is something that I'm going to do when I grow up and I uh, graduate and I'm earning and I'm a stable member of society. And I say to you, not then, but now is the time. Now is the time. And I'm not telling you this out of uh, just some sort of esoteric uh, theory, but to tell you a little bit about my own life. So growing up, I always had a, a deep calling on my life to go into missions. I remember, even as a middle schooler and a high schooler, saying, I'm going to do something in missions when I grow up. And I remember my own peers telling me that that's a waste of a life. What are you going to do? Are you, how are you going to live? What are you going to do? That seems pointless. And you got to remember, I went to Christian school, too. And when I graduated from college, I went to medical school. And after that, I went on to the mission field. And when I left medical school, rather than go and hang a shingle and take patients, I went abroad. And I served the Lord on the mission field. I actually uh, was part of a team that re restored and reopened a mission hospital that had closed for six months. And when I received this call, it was irresistible. 
because three generations of my family had worked at this particular hospital. My grandfather was a servant in this hospital who was a cook for American Presbyterian missionaries. My parents were healthcare providers there, and I went there as the head of that hospital. And when I, I remember acutely when I went back, and the first night my wife and I walked into our quarters, there was rain pouring into our house because there was a hole in the roof. There was no electricity because the power had been cut off because no one had paid the bills for three months. And there was a cow standing in my house, <laughs> chewing cud and staring back at me as if I was invading his space. <laughs> but over the course of three grueling years, we restored that hospital. We got USAID support. We built a burn unit. We built a dialysis unit. We got private rooms for patients and left that hospital in a way much better condition than when I found it. And so after that, when I came back to the United States, I thought to myself, well, Lord, where is my next mission field? And that's when he led me to Cairn University. Something that I tell my faculty all the time is, you are all teacher missionaries. You're not merely faculty, you're not academics, you're not here to teach like we do in the secular world. We have a particular calling, we have a particular mission that we are charged with. And so when I came here, I said, well, we need to be robust about missions here. And so uh, last summer, as many of you know, uh, we took a group of students to, uh, to India, and here's a picture of some of them. Uh, we met an elephant along the way, and so we took a picture with him. I was in missions, trained as a medical doctor, but I had to teach myself to do surgery. I taught myself to deliver babies by candlelight. I taught myself to do hernia repairs and appendectomies and all kinds of surgeries and make, do ultrasounds and x-rays. I did everything. I aged by 10 years, I swear to you, in three years' time. Sometimes missions is dramatic and amazing and dynamic, but sometimes it's simple and ordinary. Sometimes it's holding babies so their parents can see a doctor. Sometimes it's praying with people. And sometimes it is going and healing the sick and talking about spiritual sickness as well as physical sickness. The picture in the lower right corner that was taken in a, in a village council building that uh, several of our students went to. It had no electricity, it had no running water, and in six hours we screened 225 patients. And they were still coming when we had to leave. So let me um, give you a little foretaste, a little taste of the kind of work that I'm involved with and that we do in India. India is a big nation. It's a, actually, it is a nation of different cultures, many languages, different lifestyles. It is the second biggest country in the world according to the population. 
Kachwa is in North India, in the state of Uttar Pradesh, in eastern Uttar Pradesh. It's, it's very close to Varanasi, which is the holiest site for Hindu pilgrimage. Just around Kachwa, there are nearly 100 villages uh, with about a population of 100,000. But the area that we work in is where 10,000 villages with a population of 10 million. Uh, Kachwa Krishna Hospital caters to the physical, social, spiritual needs of this area. We want to see that this community should be transformed in spiritually. So we have church planting, we have a hospital, we have community health, we have vocationary training, we have schools, we have leadership development. These six areas are areas that develop the local population to meet the challenges of the modern world. A lot of the poor are unemployed or unemployable. So we give them uh, techniques to reduce the burden of poverty. The Hindu system says to them, oh, you're, you're poor because of your karma, and you, you just have to accept it. And after a thousand years of being told that, they just accept it. But we say, no, you're made in God's image, so you can be like me. So we encourage them to take initiative and get educated and look for vocational training, some way to earn a living in their villages. My name is Puspa. Uh, she comes from a, a very aggressive, fanatical Hindu community. There are very few Christians there. I grew up in a very poor village. There was nowhere to learn. No good schools. After I finished primary school, I wanted to study social work. But my father said I needed to go to Kachua instead. I said, OK, Daddy. I will go and do my future studies there. So when she heard there was a a dental technician's course here, her, her father sent her here, but warned her, don't get involved with any spiritual activity. Before coming to Kachua, I was Hindu, but after learning about Christianity, I became a Christian. In the last 10 years, we've baptized nearly 8,000 people. And in this area of 10,000 villages, we have nearly 1,000 house churches. Certain things that I see is, you know, when they understand, who they are and when they know that and they are also created by God and God loves them, that is very exciting. Our church planters are asked to look out for people who are not educated, who are poor, who, who are sick and then they are encouraged to get them help and education. We don't do it because we want people to come to church. We do it because of the fact that we have to love our neighbors ourselves. So we encourage poor people who come, who get benefit from the hospital, either through education or with some vocational training or some health, is not only to look at themselves as what they can get. In Hindu society, what they, their gods give them things, so they're always looking for things to get. But even if they're poor, they can give. In poor families, they say they don't have money to teach their children. They cannot take care of their children or teach them hygiene. I can teach them, but even I came from a poor family. I can teach them about disease, health, education and personal hygiene. I can be a testimony to them that I am from a poor family and they can do what I am doing. For anybody who's interested in mission, you must be interested in the poor and interested in those parts that haven't heard the gospel. This is a great area where people who haven't heard the gospel are not hear, or not only hearing it but are responding to it. Any skill that you can have, whether you're a nurse or a teacher or um, you know any skill you have can be used to uh, uplift the poor here. So you either pray, you give or you go. 
these three things that anybody who's interested in missions or who's interested in Kachwa Hospital should do. Now from that video, I want you to remember three things. Pray, give, go. Pray, give, go. Repeat them after me. Pray, give, go. Good. So everybody in this room is called to one thing, at least one thing as far as missions is concerned. That is to pray. To pray for the advance of the gospel. To pray for those who are on the mission field. Now among some of you, you will be called to give. And you may wonder, I'm a poor college student, how can you be asking me to give? Well, let me tell you, several of the mission trippers who went last year, their classmates contributed to them going. We're talking about gifts of 10 or $20. No one's asking you to give three or four or five figures. Even I can't do that. I work at Cairn. <laughs> but we can all do our small bit. And then amongst you, a few will be called to go. And that go is not just around the world, but it's also around the corner. It's not just in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, but it could be in Lancaster, England. It's not just in Kensington, but it could be in New York, or it could be in Hawaii, or it could be in China, or it could be in Levittown, and or it could be in Ben Salem. Your mission field starts the moment you set foot out of these doors. I am distressed by a world in which people live on less than $2 a day, where in some parts of the world our pets eat better than people, where 100,000 children die every year from preventable illness, where our own brothers and sisters are imprisoned and persecuted and dying for our faith. For a billion people who haven't even heard the name of Jesus. With the mammoth need of a world without Christ in front of us, and the glory of Christ in us, we have two options. We can retreat from the mission into a world of religious comfort and formalism and take this as a wasted opportunity, or we can risk everything to fulfill the divine purpose for which we have been created. And I say, let's risk it all. For the sake of a billion people who haven't heard his name, let's risk it all. For the sake of millions in our own country who are headed to a Christless eternity, I say, let's risk it all. For the sake of lost people among your peers, your families, your neighborhoods, and your communities, I say, Let's risk it all. Let me remind you, Christians have risked it all in dozens of generations for the gospel before us. I believe, and I hope you do too, that Jesus is in this chapel, and he is in our churches. But he's also in the dirty places, and the dark places, and the dangerous places, and even the mundane and mediocre places. Christians are not called to sit back in comfort and let someone else go and do the work, or merely write a check and be cleansed of an obligation. We are called to answer the question in Isaiah 6 and 8 of, who will go for me? With here I am, Lord, send me. Send me around the corner 
or send me around the world. But send me right here and right now. Whether that call is somewhere around the world or somewhere around the corner, the need is global as well as local. That is dying to comfort. That is dying to self. That is fulfilling the Great Commission. Who will go for me? Who will go for me right here, right now? The communities around us are waiting for your answer. The world is waiting for your answer. Our Lord is waiting for your answer. Here I am. Send me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and for this time you've given us to gather together and worship your name. Thank you for uh, giving us this week of focusing on missions. Um, burn in our hearts a, a new and renewed conviction to die to self, to live for you, to work for you, to spread your name, and to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.